Hey guys. So about a year ago, our daughter decided that she wanted to be a vegetarian. We're completely fine with that. Doesn't bother us a bit. If that's something she wants to do, a decision she made for herself, we are more than happy to support her in that journey. Problem is, finding good food for her to eat can really be a pain. You have the same types of tofu, same types of vegetables. She can only have salad so many times before she's sick and tired of it. Well, that brings me to Purple Carrot. A Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new with easy recipes and fresh pre-portioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste, just globally inspired, restaurant quality, plant-based meals that my daughter will love probably more than the brick of tofu I give her when we can't think of anything else to feed. Get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering PODGO30 at checkout today. That's PODGO30 for $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. Big man, it's your last chance. The last one. Come on, say something original. Say something. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. Please. And I'm crazy. <laughs> it's a little cold out here. It's like 19 degrees outside. Did it get up to? I don't know. The last time I looked at it, it was 15. And we are in a uninsulated garage recording yes. with a heater that uh well it tried hard it did poor little guy just couldn't handle it but i can feel the cold creeping <laughs> on my face seeping in. hey you got an electric blanket on i'm over here it's not even warmed up yet well it will be and you'll be okay you'll make it through i hope because i can't stand the cold i can't my body literally cannot tolerate it i think you'll be all right well this is our Third and final episode of Charles Dickens. So if you remember, um, Charles' sister Fanny had come down with tuberculosis Mm -hmm. on the last episode. Well, on the 1st of September, Charles' sister Fanny fought into a sort of a lethargy from said tuberculosis. Uh, Not a sleep, like a state of... Now, suspended animation, I guess. Kind of not, not exactly a coma, but she died the next morning at age 38. Charles and the whole family were devastated. Fanny and her husband were both avid dissenters of the church, so atheists pretty much is, I guess that's the fancy way of saying it. And they asked that she be buried on unconsecrated ground. So, in a cemetery, not a graveyard. I guess. Okay. 
Thanks for the contribution. Well, no, I mean, isn't a cemetery... A, ce- a cemetery... A graveyard is attached to a church. A I thought a cemetery a c- was attached to a church. No. A cemetery is usually ran by the city or the county or whatever. Graveyards are attached to the church. Okay. Because if you go right out here just outside town, that's the city cemetery. Okay. Okay. So, you know, she wasn't getting buried at a church. Now, this is 1848, which also happened in 1848, as Forster published a book on the life of Oliver Goldsmith, one of Charles's favorite writers. And even though he felt it to be a bit long, I think it said it was like 700 pages, so it was not that. I mean, it's long, but it's not like huge. Uh, he actually loved the book. So much so that he decided that he wanted Forster to be his official biographer. Apparently, at some point in age, you just decide who you want your biographer to be, and then you have a biographer. I really got to get on that. Who would you want your biographer to be? I don't know. Okay, thanks for contributing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm telling you, I, I, I haven't thought about it. But everybody we've talked about, at some point, they get an official biographer. I just feel like maybe I'm falling behind. Well, it has to be someone that knows you really well. Yeah. Not you. Fuck you. I'd be be your... It can't be your spouse. It could. No, because then they're going to be biased either one way or the other. I can be They're either going to tell everybody all the great stuff about you or they're going to tell everybody the fucking horrible things about you. It's going to be one or the other. I'm the perfect person because I could tell everybody the great and the bad shit about you. But you'd always stick up for me at the end. Not necessarily. Yeah, and that's not what a biographer's supposed to do. No, because I've told your mom plenty of bad shit about you, but then I've also told her great things about you. Yeah, whatever. Now, uh, in being his biographer, there were certain stories that Charles however talked about with anyone that he would need to tell Forrester. Certain stories you've got to tell your biographer if they're going to truly be your biographer. Well, after some time... Charles finally told him about his time at the blacking factory and his father's time in prison. Speaking with Forster made Charles realize that maybe others didn't see his childhood as poorly as he did, including us. We look at his childhood and say, I mean, not it wasn't great, but it wasn't the worst childhood ever, like he liked to make it out to be. I had to work at a blacking factory. Well, little Timmy, five-year-old's down the down the street, sweeping chimneys and getting black along. Yeah. He finally admitted in a note to Forrester many years later that the story of his childhood might not make the same impressions on others that the reality made on him. And getting his secrets off his chest led to another Christmas story in 1848 called The Haunted Man. Uh, The theme was the importance of being able to remember the sorrows suffered in the past and that only through memories are we able to feel for others. Sold 18,000 copies on publication, but not much after that. It wasn't one of his bigger known stories. Yeah. January 15th, 1849, Catherine went into labor. If you remember, Catherine was again pregnant. Always. Yeah. It's like continuous. It's Uh, like she reserved his sperm. No, he just wouldn't stay the fuck off of her. She'd push out a baby, and they'd be like, okay, get back on. And then pregnancy, baby, get back on. He just, he wouldn't stay the fuck off of her. He liked 
the sex. <sighs> he felt that sex was a, a a vital part of a healthy man's life. That they they needed to have sex, even though he didn't truly love her. Well, he loved her. He wasn't in love with her. There we go. Because there is a difference between love and in love. So, I know we come into this episode talking about all the things that we you hated about Charles Darwin, uh, Dickens before. You know, you had called him a misogynistic douchebag to me a few times. Um, so all that, you take into consideration all the good things he's done for people. Uh, he helped out to poor, and he helped all those prostitutes out with setting them up in the home, which he's continuing to doing right now. And that's all, you know, and, and you look at that and you think it's great. So all this stuff with Catherine and with his kids is, it's really going to get worse. It's going to get so much worse. You haven't, you don't even know. It's going to be fucking horrible. And you're going to hate him even more. And you might not ever read a Dickens novel it's, again. It's like how <laughs> it's, right now everybody hates J.K. Rowling, but they love the world she created. So fuck yeah. Rowling. Love Harry Potter. Yeah, and, and uh, by the end of this, you'll be saying, fuck Charles Dickens, but you'll still love, you know, Bob Cratchit and, and you know, Tale of Two Cities and Oliver Twist and all, yes. all you'll still love the stories, but it, nobody's going to like Charles Dickens by the end of the story. I already don't like you'll him. You'll hate him more. Now, with this labor was probably another breach, and delivery was not going great. Charles remembered reading about chloroform as an anesthetic. And with Catherine's agreement, they arranged a doctor beforehand from St. Bartholomew's to administer it at delivery. Even though many doctors at the time saw it as dangerous or could impede labor, kill the mother, produce idiot children... The delivery went better after Catherine was chloroformed, and four years later, the practice would be so well accepted that even the queen used it in her labor. Uh, their son was named Henry Fielding Dickens. So, not as good as an epidural, but still helped. Knock me the fuck out and pull this kid out. <laughs> That's right. Now, at the same time of his new child being born and publishing his latest Christmas story, he was working through an idea for a new book. His favorite book that he would ever write, David Copperfield. Yes. It was his first book to be told in first person, and only the second to give a voice to a child who is taken seriously as a narrator. The first 14 chapters talk about David's early childhood, they show the pain of a child being separated from his mother, used unkindly by his stepfather, humiliated and punished without knowing why, set to a boarding school, run on a harsh and unjust system, helpless in the hands of people who don't like him. An unfortunately common experience for many at the time, and the readers could see themselves through the eyes of David. Charles deliberately made the early childhood years pass so slowly to show how slowly time passes for an unhappy child, which is pretty ingenious. He shows how someone who offers love to a neglected child becomes an important and indispensable character in that child's life. Now, when I read that, the first thing that th I thought of was you, because you kind of haven't had a shit game. We're not going to get into your childhood too much, Stephanie, but you kind of had a shit childhood with living with your mother. 
egg donor. But when you look back at somebody who showed you kindness and showed you love, and that person became extremely important to you and is still important to you, your dad. Well, of course, my dad and other people who helped support me and look after me. And you were going through a shitty time with her. And then there's these other people who are, again, kind to you, loving, taking you into their family, into their home, which became it all was your family and all was your home. And that's what I think of. Like, that's probably why he's so important to you was because he was there and showing you all the love that you weren't getting from the person you should have been getting all that love and attention from. Yeah, exactly. So, so it gives me a th- reading about Charles Dickens gives me a little bit more insight into my wife. <laughs> now, Char- <laughs> Charles even uses some of his own experiences in the book. Not that Charles's life was really anything like David's, but. He somewhat transfers his own parents' callousness and indifference of his working at the blacking factory into David's sadistic stepfather. I don't think you can really compare the two, but whatever. But also, he uses uh, his parents as the inspiration for the Macabers, who are more kind to him. Uh, Mr. Macabre giving David the same advice John gave Charles at a young age, if you remember this. Quote, annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 191906 results happiness annual income 20 pounds annual expenditure 20 pounds ought and 6 result misery it's the same thing john told him you make this amount of money and you spend this you're fine you make this amount of money and you spend too much you're miserable it's the same fucking thing he told him when he was in prison if you remember all the way back from yes. the first uh, season 1 of charles dickens uh, it ran in green paper wrappers with the fizz illustrations, which became an integral part of it from May 1849 to November 1850. It didn't sell as well as Dombey, but would go on to be one of his most famous books. And it's said that Tolstoy was a huge fan. However, two problems would rear their ugly heads during the publication of Copperfield. For those of you that have read it and may remember Miss Miss Moucher, a dwarf hairdresser who, in the later chapters, is a fighter for virtue, uh, she didn't start out that way. Now, when he first wrote the character, she was very badly behaved. The problem was that a close neighbor of Charles's was one Mrs. Seymour Hill, a dwarf and a chiropodist. Uh, The obvious resemblance to the character hurt her personally and professionally. Charles soon got a letter from Mrs. Hill's lawyer. Charles wrote back saying that he had taken some characteristics from Hill and that he meant Mrs. Moucher to be bad, but that he would change the plot to make her a better character. And he did. This is the first time. It's not the first time he's changed a character uh, after, you know, writing it. Uh, and it won't be the last time he he changes a character or a complete or the ending of a complete story to appease other people, which you probably shouldn't do because it can end up hurting the story. Now the second problem involved an Englishman named Thomas Powell, who published a hostile and worthless biography of Charles in America. 
And when Charles exposed Powell's past as a thief and a forger who had escaped jail in England by having himself committed to a lunatic, a lunatic asylum and then fled the country, Powell threatened to sue him for libel. Powell is the inspiration for one of Charles's slimier characters, Uriah Heep. Uh, by the end of 1849, Catherine would again be pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> do you know Uriah? Do you remember the character Uriah Heep? Yeah, I think so. It's been a very long time since, since I've read, read David Copperfield. Yes. Now, in February 1850, he set up a new periodical, Household Words, launching that next month. Every contribution would be completely anonymous. He said that the aim of the journal was, quote, the raising up of those that are down and the general improvement of our social condition. It would run for nine years. Now, this is the same household words that I spoke about in episode two that he posts uh, about the home at Shepherd's Bush anonymously. August 6th, their ninth child was born, Dora Annie Dickens, named after the deceased heroine from David Copperfield. So, you know that book I wrote? Well, I'm going to name one of my kids after one of the characters. Kind of narcissistic. Oh, he, he was Kind a of a narcissist, yeah. Early 1851, John fell ill and had to undergo surgery on his bladder. Family and friends called Charles to John's bedside almost as the surgery took place. So he pretty much ran into his bedside. I mean, right when they had just like finished sewing him up. The 1800s. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Quote, he bore it with astonishing fortitude and I saw him directly afterwards. His room, a slaughterhouse of blood. He was wonderfully cheerful and strong-hearted. I bet he was fucking <laughs> drunk as hell because Possibly. that was pretty much the only medicine you got back then. Pretty much. Mor- uh, liquid morphine and alcohol. Yeah. Three days later, though, John wasn't able to recognize anybody. Charles came to his bedside about 11 at night on March 30th, and he didn't leave until John passed around 5.30 the next morning on the 31st. So, Complications from the surgery. I mean, it's it's eighteen fifty one. More than likely, they left a fucking rag inside of him. Thought that it would be fine. Yeah. Now, over the next few years, Charles made sure to stay more busy than you would think the average man could, writing novels, articles, letters, producing a child's history of England, editing, organizing his children's education, advising Miss Couts on charitable endeavors, pondering questions of the political reform, public health, housing, and sewage, traveling, acting, making speeches, raising money, and working off his excess energy in his customary, now wait for it, 12-mile walks that he took daily. Yeah. And keeping up with the care of the home at Shepherd's Bush and having one last child. Or one last child that we know of. Ooh. (laughs) Teaser. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fucker. Edward Bulwer Lighton Dickens was born on March 13, 1852, the youngest and last child of Charles and Catherine. He would be known to the family as 
Plorn. Plorn? <laughs> Was that the sound he made when he came um, out? <laughs> <laughs> Larry! <laughs> yeah, Plorn. I was like, what the f- Plorn? And that's what they call him. Plorny, Plorn, Master Plorn. All It's like, what the fuck are you on? Whatever. I mean, call your kids whatever you fucking want, I suppose. I I I call one kid bugger. I call one. I call the same one pumpkin butt sometimes because when he was a baby, his butt looked like a pumpkin. I mean, I'm guessing there's some type of some reasoning behind some wordplay. Lord, but like how he got Boz from his brother. He he came up with Boz, but I don't know. He's a wordsmith, so I guess he comes up with his own shit. You know, whatever. Now, also in March of 1852, Charles released the first chapter of a new book he had been planning on since February of 1851 and started writing in December and would continue to write through the autumn of 1853, Bleak House. Have you ever heard of Bleak House? I think so. It sounds familiar. Now, this book would get away from the personal themes of Copperfield and focus on broader and more somber ones. The, quote, physical sickness of London. It's toxic water, rotten housing, bursting graveyards, and festering sewers. Gone was the high-spirited comedy of earlier novels and entered jokes edged with horror. Yeah, that yeah, that does sound more familiar now. Yeah. It was a mix of a classic three suspect murder mystery detective story <laughs> with a nineteenth century fairy tale. With good and evil spirits, reversals, discoveries of lost parents and children, comedy, violence, tragic death, and of course, a little love. What's life without a little love? Monthly sales were around thirty-four to 43,000 when it was all said and done. Charles made about 11,000 pounds off of Bleak House, which was good money back then. I take 11,000 pounds now, but it looks like we might just get 600 bucks. At 1854, Charles wrote the novel Hard Times in weekly installments of Household Words between April and August, intended to boost circulation of the paper and actually succeeding in doubling it. The chief message of the book looks at the bad effects of the education that focuses completely on facts and ignores imagination and fun. With the antagonist, the schoolmaster named McChokumchild. McChokumchild. Yep. It took place in the working community of Coketown, an, in, an industrial. It sounds like it sounds like a town that you'd see on South Park. Just Coketown. Place where you go and <laughs> buy the finest. Coke. That's where Randy goes on his days off. I hear no bell. Uh, an industrial town populated by mill workers based on Preston in Lancashire, or Lancashire, where Charles went in early 1854 to observe a long-running strike. The narrator of sorts is a fat, seedy man who travels around entertaining the poor with tightrope walkers, clowns, and performing dogs and horses named Sleary. Oh, if I trust a guy named Sleary. No, again, that's like a one of those. Uh, <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> she had it. Is is it? Ah, uh, uh, she was. Yeah, yeah, I'm tired. 
but what makes this story stand ahead of its time is that Sleary is one of the first narrators to speak with a lisp. He wrote the lisp. Showing that people with handicap could be likable, intelligent, and perceptive. Ooh, yes. Uh, Throughout 1855, Charles wrote strongly expressed political letters to friends about the rottenness of the political system that made England like France before the revolution. And the results might be the same given the, quote, enormous black cloud of poverty that hangs over every town, parliament being silent and aristocracy idle. Now, when the new liberal MP, Austin Layard, formed the Association for Administrative Reform in May 1855, Charles joined and addressed it. He gave his views of the government in a series of articles and household words, careful to explain that he was not seeking a career in politics. And even though the Association for Administrative Reform fizzled out by September, he continued to write to friends that, quote, representative government has become altogether a failure with us that the English Gentiles and subservience rendered the people unfit for it, and that the whole thing has broken down. He funneled his rage at the government and disdain for the ongoing Crimean War into a book he had been calling Nobody's Fault. He soon changed the name to Little Dorrit. Have you ever heard of Little Dorrit? I had not heard of Little Dorrit. I don't think I have, but he should have titled it everybody's fault (laughs) instead of well it set the story in 1820s he made fun of prominent political families with political families of his own named the teat barnacles and the stilt stockings teat uh (laughs) it shows the sons of these families given seats in parliament because of who their parents were and lord Decimus Barnacle himself dispenses patronage at a carefully arranged dinner where he is encouraged by sycophant guests to telling his only joke involving lengthy reminiscence about a pear tree at Eton and pears in Parliament. And he takes much pleasure in boring everyone with it. Yeah, it sounds like a, a political leader. Kind of. In the glow of satisfaction that this gives him, he offers a senior position to his hostess's son, a young man described by his own wife as, quote, almost an idiot, (laughs) (laughs) but made acceptable through his access to the fortune of his millionaire stepfather. Of course. Again, sounds like most of our politicians. Every politician. Not, Not every politician, but goddamn a lot of them. Now, this devastating piece of mockery angered the men Charles was ridiculing, obviously, because they have no, they have thin skin and no funny bone. And it was, and it received bad reviews later by people who thought better of approving such a book. Yeah, it's like, oh, we like this book, but we can't say we like this book because then these people will be mad at us. Oh, heaven forbid you have an original thought. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Growing that spine hurts. You just don't want to do it. Now, its first chapter would appear in December 1855 and run until May 1857, selling even better than Bleak House and making around 600 pounds a month for the 20-month run. So, again, not bad. Also, 
1855, Charles received a letter from an old, let's say, friend. Out of the blue, for almost no certain reason, a woman named Maria Winter wrote to him and told him of her new marriage and her two sons. Charles did not know her as Maria Winter. To him, she would always be sweet Maria Beadnell. Do you remember Maria mm-hmm. Beadnell? Yeah. The love of his youth. He wrote back to her quickly, saying, quote, Believe me, you cannot more tenderly remember our old days and our old friends than I do. Your letter is more touching to me from its good and gentle association with the state of spring in which I was either much more wise or much more foolish than I am now. Much more foolish. He was getting ready to go on a short trip to Paris and offered to get her children gifts and that he would have his wife arrange a meeting between them and her and her husband. But Charles never said anything about Maria to Catherine. In fact, five days later, he wrote Maria again saying that he, quote, got the heartache again and, quote, Whatever of fancy, romance, energy, passion, aspiration, and determination belong to me, I never have separated and never shall separate from the hard-hearted little woman, you, whom it is nothing to say I would have died for, that I began to fight my way out of poverty and obscurity with one perpetual idea of you. I have never been so good a man since as I was when you made me wretchedly happy. And a third letter. I'm just gonna. Uh, I'm just gonna do a, a little. Um, Lion cheating bastard. I'm just gonna do a little uh, uh, impersonation of my wife real quick because at some point during this episode, she's gonna look me at me and go, "If you ever did any of this shit, I would take a knife and I would cut it off." And I don't know why she's going to say that to me. I've never given her any reason to want to say something like that to me. It wouldn't be the first time she said that to me, right? I suppose. If you ever did any of this, I would cut it off. I'd take your balls and I'd shove it up your ass. Am I wrong? That's more like what I would say. You just staring at me. Oh. And a third letter. Uh, quote, No one but myself has the slightest knowledge of my correspondence. And I may add in this place, I could be nowhere addressed with stricter privacy or in more absolute confidence than at my own house. Hmm. <laughs> the flames coming off of her head. They made plans to meet for a secret romance even though she warned him that she was now, quote, toothless, fat, old, and ugly. To which he replied, quote, you are always the same in my remembrance. They set up the meeting, and when Charles showed up, seeing that Maria was, indeed, toothless, fat, old, and ugly, he made a hasty retreat. (sighs) (laughs) Fucking deserves it. Goddamn bastard. Well... And then you sit there and you're like, oh, you kind of feel bad for her. like he. But then you're like, no, she's married and she knows he's married. Fuck her. Yeah, fuck, fuck that bitch. Fuck, 
They both deserve their balls cut off. <laughs> Fucking goddamn it. God, fuck. Now, the two couples did eventually meet for dinner, which just sounds a horrible idea. But Charles made excuses from then on to not meet with Maria. He even created Flora Finching, an overweight, greedy drinker, absurd in her unstoppable and only half-comprehensible conversations, and pined over her old loves, character, and little Dorrit, inspired directly by Maria. And apparently when she finally read it, she knew immediately that that was her. Now, <laughs> in March of 1856, Forster announced he was getting married. Finally. Yay. To Elizabeth Colburn, a 37-year-old widow of a rich publisher. So he's, I mean, he struck it rich. Way to go, Forster. Yeah. Leaving Charles to feel pangs of jealousy and fearing he would lose his place in Forster's life. Writing to him, quote, The old days, the old days. Shall I ever, I wonder, get the frame of mind back as it used to be then? Something of it, perhaps, but never quite as it used to be. I find that the skeleton in my domestic closet is becoming a pretty big one. Oh, he's so melodramatic. Fucking prima donna bitch. Yeah, well, the skeleton being his unhappiness with his marriage to Catherine. Now, by this time, he was sick of the whole Hogarth clan, with the exception of Georgina. Uh, quote, I cannot bear the contemplation of their imbecility anymore. I think my constitution is already undermined by the sight of Hogarth at breakfast. It's pretty good. You can look at me like that all you want. It's pretty good. Now, according to correspondence between Charles and Forrester, Charles felt like he and Catherine were never right for each other, and he pretty much said, more or less, that she would be happier without ever meeting him or marrying him. She probably would have been. Uh, now, to me, it seems like he was looking for an excuse to get out of a marriage he no longer wanted to be in by saying that Catherine would be better off when in reality he thought he would be. Well, yeah, he just... He wanted someone to fuck. He got that someone to fuck. He wanted he wanted someone new. He wanted somebody who hasn't pushed out nine kids, ten kids, because pushing out that many kids changes your body. And he wants he wants someone young and trim. And his wife isn't young and trim anymore. Because, like I said, he loves her. He was not in love with her. Uh, the first part of that. Hold on to that for a little bit. He had love for her. Okay. Because he did give her his children. Yeah. But you can, you can not, how do I word this? You can lose love for someone. Falling out of love yeah. with someone is harder than losing love for someone. I suppose. I don't, I don't think it's falling out of love with someone. I think it's. Because being in love with someone is, it, it includes, you know, adoration and respect and commitment and so many more things than just love. I think it's a big fear of losing something that you've had for a long time. Um, like, I mean, we'll get into personal issues. When my ex-wife and I divorced, it wasn't an in love type thing anymore. It was a, this is the one thing that's been a constant in my life for 12 years and now all of a sudden that constant is going to be gone 
And even though I had you at the time when all that was happening, it was still terrifying that all of a sudden this one thing that had been in my life is just gone. Whether you're happy it's gone or upset it's gone, whatever, it still fucking shakes you. And it, it takes a while to get over that. Uh, now with, with Charles and Catherine, um, he's just a dick and he wants a younger, thinner woman. That's pretty much all it boils down to. He likes he likes the young girls. Not like pedophile range young girls, but like the 18, 19, 20-year-old girls, he's into them. And Catherine was overweight now, pushing out 10 kids in 20 years. We'll do that to you. And then <clears throat> there was the fact that he was soon to be in a working relationship with actress Mariah Turnin and her daughters, especially Ellen. Hmm. Indeed. In January 1857, little Charlie, you remember little Charlie, son? Turning 20. Getting ready to celebrate his 20th birthday. And Charles wanted to put on a play at their Tavistock house called The Frozen Deep, inspired by the Sir John Franklin expedition of 1845 to find the Northwest Passage, which had ended in tragedy and disputes about the final fate of the men since there was some evidence that they had turned to cannibalism. Yeah, so daughter party-ish. Kind of like the uh, Alive story, but way, way before that. Yeah, about the same time as the Donner Party. Well, yeah, around that time. The Donner Party is if, that Donner Party is probably the most famous cannibalism story there is, uh, and it's just horrible. I don't think I've heard of that. You've never heard of the Donner Party? No. Oh, you and I are going to have a talk when we get off of here. Holy shit. This Have is not... you heard of the Alive story? Oh yeah, I know, I know Alive, the the whole story about the um, the book and the airplane. Yeah, the, yeah, the team they crash and they end up resorting to cannibalism, the ones that stay alive. But yeah. the Donner Party is, it's a, it's this is not a true crime or a macabre podcast, so we won't really get into it. But after the microphone's gone, you and I are going to talk. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Now, of course, Charles would cast himself in this as the sacrificial hero role of Richard Wardour, who has an emotional-filled and dramatic death that brings all the tears. Of course, that's his role. Uh, they put on several performances of the play, even one specifically for the Queen. In his defense, most people said that he was an amazing actor, so I guess he was able to pull off the part. Even people who weren't, you know, stroking his his, you know, ego, uh, would say that he was an amazing actor. He he could read, he could put out emotion. So, I mean, him having the lead role was probably the best for the play, but still kind of a dick thing to do. Uh so when the chance came to putting on the play in Manchester at the free trade hall that sat four thousand people. He knew he would need professional actresses since the voices of the Dickens and Hogarth girls could not fill the space. It was one of those family things, bringing the family and the friends to do it. But they weren't professional actors, and they wouldn't be. And this was before microphones. 
you spoke in a huge auditorium, you had to speak loudly so you everybody had to could project. hear you. Yes, and you needed professionals for that. Enter Mariah Turnin and her daughters, Mariah and Ellen, whom Charles called Nellie. Get used to that name. Nellie. Now, the, they would take over all the roles from his daughters and his in-laws in Manchester, working closely with Nellie in a farce that they were also performing called Uncle John. Now, this meeting with the Turnin family in August of 1857 would lead to changes in every aspect of his life. Also, his health started to decline with a series of mysterious ailments, including weakness, neuralgia, rheumatic pains, arthritis, yeah, I know. and painful sw- they might not oh. and painful swelling in his feet and hands, more than likely gout, but he didn't agree with the diagnosis for some fucking reason. Over the next few years, like decade, a little over a decade, he'll have this he'll have gout and doctors will tell him that it's gout and he'll so he'll go to another doctor that'll tell him it's not gout because he doesn't like the diagnosis. Why? I don't know. Is there I, any evidence of him eating but, organ meat? Uh, organ meat isn't the only thing that gives you gout. No, well, but well, it's pretty prominent uh, in gout. Well, my dad rare, my dad has really bad gout. He rarely eats. I mean, he loves liver, but he rarely gets it because my mom hates it. So he gets it for like his birthday, but he still has gout pretty bad. We'll get to more of that later. It just it, It's weird because he doesn't have any reason to not agree with the diagnosis or hate that diagnosis, but but we'll, we'll get to hear it a little bit. Uh, now, after the Manchester shows, Charles went to see the Tiernans at their home in Doncaster, possibly to grow closer to them as friends, but mostly because he wanted Nellie. I mean, he wanted to pound that ass. She's 18 years old, pretty. He wanted to have her as his own. And this would be the final nail in the coffin, which was his marriage to Catherine. He spent quite a bit of time at the house with them, Mariah and her daughters, Mariah, Ellen, and their oldest, Fanny, who was a singer, not an actress. Uh, Again, Fanny. How many times have we heard that fucking name? I've heard that name more doing this show than I have my entire life. What is that short for? Fandria? I don't fucking know. It's just Fanny. Fanny's got to be a nickname. That can't be the full name. Well, it can be. I mean, I guess it could, but I wonder if it's a nickname. I don't know, but we've we've covered a lot between uh, Wollstonecraft and uh, I think Stoker, I think we had a Fanny, and now we've uh, two Fannies so far in this. I know we've had other Fannies before. All the fannies. Because, well, like, I know Ellie could be short for Eleanor. This show or brings Eleanor. all the fannies. Um, and then Nellie is. Uh, well, El- Nellie is El- is his nickname for Ellen. Yeah. But I don't know. We've we've had a ton of fucking fannies on this show. So many fannies. So many fannies. Like I said, this show brings all the fannies. Now well, he better than the milkshakes. Yeah. He saw this as the family he should have had. When he, you know, because he wanted, he wanted three daughters and a wife. And now he has Mariah Turden, who he's not, isn't really his wife. And these three girls. But he wants to bone his. And they're, and they're all in the theater somehow. 
which is where he wanted his life. This is the family he should have had in his eyes. And yes, he technically wants to fuck his imaginary's uh, youngest daughter. Kind of weird. Now, when he went home on October 11th, he demanded that Catherine's maid, Anne, put up a partition between his wife's bedroom and a dressing room where he would sleep alone in a single bed, letting Catherine and everyone else know that the marriage was all but over. Just out of the blue. He comes home, he's like, hey, I'm not going to sleep in bed with you anymore. In fact, why don't we just block this part off so we just don't see each other? But, I mean, we already talked about before, the only time they shared a bed was when they were doing it. Otherwise, they didn't have anything, he didn't have anything to do with her. He always hung out with his male friend. She was too slow to keep up with him when he went for walks. So, I mean, I, she had to have seen it coming at least a little bit. I'd murder that motherfucker. As long as it's him and not me. If that was you. Like, here here we go. <laughs> if that was me and you in that position. See, I told you this was going to happen. I didn't murder. I see that I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> you always do this. You always be like, if you ever. I'm not ever. I, I, I don't know why you would bring. Every I'm just time, putting you, us you, in you that situation. You don't need to put us in that situation. It's not us. It's fucking Charles If Dickens, it was. 1850s. I'm just letting you know. I don't. You don't need to let me know. I get it. You let me know once, and that's all. All you need to do. It's not. You don't need to let me. Not know. Not to mention, my dad would kill you. But I could only die once. No. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, he he didn't sleep with Catherine anymore. Obviously, not because he didn't want sex, but because he wanted to save himself for Nellie. He wanted to, uh, uh, he, and he also wanted uh, approval from Nellie's mother for the relationship that he was hoping for. So he decided to start helping out and taking care of them financially. The Turnants. He started. He uh, he started paying their bills, um, taking care of them, sending them money for whatever reason. Not making sure that. Uh, Fanny got jobs, making sure that Mariah and Nellie got jobs, which kind of come back to bite everybody in the ass. But yeah. And the thing is, she at the time didn't show any interest in him. He was doing this all on hope that maybe she would. Well, I mean, guys are morons like <sighs> that. So it happened. They, he's friend zoned. Uh, mm, that's not, what it seems like. Not quite friend zone. He's a friend of the family. Uh, but he's a new friend, and that's always kind of a tricky thing. So he's not friend zoned. It's just he's not he, even he's, noticed. No, he's noticed. They know, and and he's he's giving her again. We're gonna get to it. He's giving her a lot of attention, and she's enjoying the attention. But um. Nothing nothing has happened between them yet. She's not really taken his seduction seriously yet. Okay. Now, he uh, quickly becomes worse to Catherine and his kids, much more than he had ever been before. Uh, he would insult Catherine, uh, flying into rage when someone would disagree with him, lying to defend himself. He now had to be in the right about everything all the time. Probably because he knew 
he was in the wrong about everything. About his, you know, marriage and with Nelly. His and, infidelity. Yeah. But and he hasn't even he hasn't even done anything yet. Thinking about it is cheating. Okay, true. True. But he hasn't done anything physically about it yet. Like he's been fantasizing about it. But I don't think you you separate from your wife because you have a you've been fantasizing about maybe possibly getting with this eighteen year old chick that you kind of wish was your daughter. It's, it's, it's fucked up. And and he's saving his junk to it, splurge all yeah. in her. And and the fact that things weren't going the way he wanted with Nelly is probably another reason that he was all pissy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, it really fucking killed him <laughs> that he that, that he was putting all this effort into seducing her. Because he was. He was putting the effort in. And she was just like, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> for, again, for now. For now. Uh, it did. It made him. It made him bitter. Uh, to the point where he was writing friends and professional acquaintances and told them that Catherine didn't care about the children and they didn't care about her. Yeah, things things are gonna get nasty because now he's bringing he's bringing that type of shit in. Don't talk <laughs> she's, about my kids. She's in here. She's popping her neck. She's getting in fight mode. I told you you were gonna be pissed off. Now, in December, he wrote yet another fucking Christmas story. This one for household words called The Perils of Certain English Prisoners. <laughs> Meant as a tribute to the spirit of English soldiers and women who had suffered in the mutiny of India. Set in the Caribbean and made into an encounter with pirates. It wasn't the greatest. Well, yeah, because what do pirates have to do with Christmas? Mm, I don't know. Get him a bottle of rum and say... Where's all the rum? Ahoy. Uh, Charles got worse in 1858, actually making Catherine, quote, call on the Turnin family. I'm not sure exactly what call on the Turnin family means, but um, I think it has something to do with she would have to go over there and do stuff for him or have them come over to the house. Call on them, I think, means ask for help. Yeah, he made her call on them, on the family he wishes he had. And once an engraved bracelet Charles had made for Nellie was delivered to Catherine. Son of a bitch. <laughs> In March, she made his last known visit to the home in Shepherd's Bush. The home wouldn't last much longer. He would soon stop all arrangements with the institution he built, and it wouldn't last very long without him. Mrs. Couts would try to keep things going for a short bit, but it wasn't the same. And not long after they stopped taking in girls, the area would be again filled with ladies of the night. Like the whole town uh, just outside of London where they are at. Once the home shut down, it kind of, the whole area just kind of went to shit. Because he wasn't helping out the, the area anymore. Because he was so wrapped up in his own shit. He wanted a floozy. Yeah. Now, by this time, Charles was now doing public readings of his books, not the actual books themselves. He, he'd rewrite and edit the stories down, or he'd make new stories to go along with the already published books. So he wasn't just going out there and reading um, A Christmas Carol. He'd be reading 
parts of A Christmas Carol differently or he'd be reading a side story from A Christmas Carol or something like that. That's really neat. I think all authors should do that. He does does that a lot. Um, Like for the last decade of his life. That's pretty much how he makes the most of his money is through reading. Uh, he does it for the money, obviously, but he's got he's an egomaniac and he gets cheers and accolades from his audience, and that means almost as much to him as the fucking money does because again he's a narcissist. <clears throat> uh, Forster was against them. He didn't like that Charles was doing them. This did not keep Charles from asking him to act. For him, in negotiations with Catherine over a legal separation, even though Forster disagreed with it, he knew he could always trust Forster for his support. So Forster was against the whole separation from the very beginning, but he still acted as his lawyer, I guess, in it. Power of attorney, I something yeah, like that. Yeah, I guess. On May 9th, he wrote to Mrs. Couts telling her that him and Catherine were separating, saying, quote, the marriage had been for years and years as miserable as one has ever made. He ends the letter accusing Catherine of jealousness and that the children didn't love her and Georgina and Mary before her had seen it. The next day, he told his um, oldest son, Charlie, about the separation. And to Charles's surprise, Charlie took Catherine's side. Of course. Good old mama's boy. Good job. And... Charlie's another hero of the story because he will continue to side with Catherine. He loves his father, and he doesn't want to cut his father out of his life, but he sides with his mother. As all children, well, not all children. And and you would think that the family ties would be strong. But on the same day, Georgina made it clear to Catherine that she was forever on Charles's side. Of course the girls are going to be daddy's girls. Well, Georgina is Catherine's sister. Oh. You remember. Mary died. They went off to America. When they came back, Georgina moved in with them uh, to help care with the kids. Georgina Hogarth is Catherine's youngest sister. Oh, so she yeah. followed the money. Uh, she really she she's in love. She loves Charles, not in love with Charles, but she loves Charles like uh, like an older brother or almost like a father. Oh, okay. And um, she's loyal to him, not her sister. Well, whatever. Catherine was awarded 400 pounds a year and a carriage. <laughs> so whatever. Uh, shortly after all the scandal of Charles and Nellie soon went public, uh, causing a rift in many of his friendships, even though he lied and said that nothing was going on, which technically yet it wasn't, uh, to save his reputation and hers. In June, he decided to publish a personal statement in the press. He sent a copy to Catherine. Yeah with a note saying he hoped all unkindness was over between them. It's like, motherfucker, you're the one doing it. She should just go punch him in the ball. <laughs> the statement was a bit foggy, alluding to long-standing domestic troubles that had been wrapped up with an amicable arrangement. But, yeah, right. And as to the wicked spreading of abominable false rumors involving, quote, Innocent persons dear to my heart. It was printed in the Times, and he put it in household words, but Punch Magazine refused it. Now, usually this wouldn't be enough to enrage Charles, but the owners of Punch Magazine were also his current publishers, Bradbury and Evans. 
and its editor was his longtime friend and Catherine's advocate in the separation, Mark Lemon. So everybody there is pretty much, no, against him. Like, you're fucking up. Now, this caused him and his older children to break off all communications with Lemon and the Evans children, with the exception of Charlie, who would go on to marry one of Evans' daughters, Bessie. It's like, not only am I going to keep talking to them, I'm marrying her. Apparently, they were childhood sweethearts anyway. Yes. So, uh, Catherine was happy about it. Charles, not so much. Now, when they do finally end up getting married, uh, Charles doesn't go to the wedding. He is not happy about the wedding because he doesn't think he should be marrying her. Catherine's at the wedding. She's super excited about it because she loves Bessie and she thinks that it's a great arrangement. Charles eventually does come around uh, because he realizes that he's, you know, Bessie's a perfectly fine wife to Charlie. Uh, but he like they like stand. They go. I guess they go to like the church where it's happening, and they kind of stand outside and they try to convince people not to go in. Yeah, he pulls some stupid shit. Yeah, that would have been some shit. My egg donor. Would have <laughs> yes, it would. That, that's why I did not invite her. Yeah. Uh, the scandal would put an even bigger rift into the relationship of Charles with the Hogarth family, going as far as Charles forbidding his children from speaking to Catherine's mother or her sister Helen. And again, Charlie was the holdout to this order. He's like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. You're not going to tell me who I can't, can't talk to. It's my family. I'm going to talk to whoever the fuck I want, Dad. Now, in August, Charles set out for a reading tour of Scotland and Ireland when the children stayed with Catherine. While in Ireland, Mrs. Couts wrote to him to let him know that Catherine and the kids had came by her home for a summer holiday. He replied with, quote, Since we spoke of her before, she has caused me unspeakable agony of mind, and I must plainly put before you what I know to be true. She does not, and she never did, care for the children, and the children did not, and they never did, care for her. The little play that is acted in your drawing room is not the truth. And the less the children play it, the better for themselves. Oh, Mrs. Coates, do I not know that the weak hand that never could help or serve my name in the least has struck at it in conjunction with the wickedest people whom I have loaded with benefits? I want to communicate with her no more. I want to forgive and forget her. From Walter away in India to little Plornish at Gad's Hill, there is a grim knowledge among them that what I now write is the plain, bare fact. She has always disconcerted them. They have always disconcerted her. And she is glad to be rid of them, and they are glad to be rid of her. Fair enough. Not fair enough. It, it, I, obviously, it, she loves the children, and obviously the children love her. He's right, just, but he's just... He's bitching. No, I say Walter away in India. His son Walter moved to India. Right. And Plornish to Gad's Hill. Gad's Hill is a house that he purchased a while back. He had been doing rehab on for a really long time and kind of living there, not living there, living there, not living there, renting it out, living there, all stuff. So if I say Gad's Hill, that's what I'm talking about. It, 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 it didn't seem like it was important enough to put in here, even though Claire Tomlinson... Um, that's dedicates like half a fucking chapter to buying this house and rehabbing it. It serves no purpose to the book. So 
Uh, it was shortly after this where people began really taking sides in the whole separation. He would start cutting people out of his life who showed any signs of maybe seeing things from Catherine's side. Uh, their daughter Katie said that he didn't talk to her for nearly two years because she would have the gall to occasionally go visit her own mother. Yeah. Now, while all this was happening, his brothers weren't doing much better. Fred was being divorced by his wife for adultery, which he said uh, he had good reason for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's good reason to cheat. Yeah. And no. he would later go to jail for failure to pay his alimony, fleeing the country, and then returning bankrupt. And Augustus, remember little Augustus, his youngest brother, lived with his parents for so long? He had deserted his wife, who had gone blind, for another woman and skipped town to America. Sounds a lot like... So, kind of the whole family, all the men, except for uh, Alfred, kind of all pieces of shit. Just like their father. And their grandfather. You remember mm -hmm. their grandfather also fleed the country after he stole a bunch of money from the Navy pay office. Now, Forster worked on the separation between Charles and Bradbury and Evans as well, which was said to be just as messy as the one with Catherine. Then in 19, 1859, Charles started his own weekly magazine to which he would be the owner, publisher, and editor, first called Household Harmony, which Forster talked him out of because Household Harmony, and he's, I mean, come on. And it became All the Year Round. And it was in this magazine that he would finally publish a story that I'm sure everyone listening to this was forced to read in either junior high or high school, A Tale of Two Cities. Get into a big one. Now, the story was inspired by the study of Thomas Carlyle of the French Revolution and researched under Carlyle for the central character, Sidney Carton, one of the few times a lawyer is seen as the good guy and hero in a Dickens novel. His other inspiration was from his character Wardor, Wardor from The Frozen Deep. It would be a weekly, not monthly serial, which he had that not done since 1854, first appearing near the end of April, directly competing with Bradbury and Evans' household words. It didn't get the best reviews. Critics were used to a certain amount of humor in a Dickens story, there's very little of that in The Tale of Two Cities. Tale of Two Cities, not a comedy. No. Uh, he also put the book out in a monthly installments with illustrations from Fizz, if you remember Fizz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it would be the last time they were work together or even speak much. Fizz, or Hamlet Brown as he was Christianly named, was on Catherine's side. That's what you get for being a dick, dude. Now, in May of 1960, Charles's brother, Alfred, the only brother to make something respectable of himself, became very sick, and before Charles was able to make it to his bedside, he became the second of the Dickens clan to succumb to tuberculosis of the lungs. Uh, his widow, Helen, and their five young children were now Charles's responsibility, as he saw it, and he moved them to London and made sure that the boys got an education, he ended up moving his sick and dying mother into the London house with them, and she would be cared for by Helen. He was now supporting three houses of women in North London. His wife, the Ternans, and Helen, the kids, and his mother. He ended up selling his Tavistock house and buying a new one within walking distance of all 
three holes. So you just go boo, boo, boo. Gosh, what an idiot. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes, and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! In October 1860, Charles began work on, and then in December, put out the first weekly installment of what some say might be the most perfect novel ever, Great Expectations. It would run for about 20 weeks to June of 1861. Many of his childhood experiences would come up, the Kent Marshlands, Rochester, London Law Courts, Newgate Prison, things like that, a while before he had made a walk from his Tavistock house to his Gad's Hill House, right around 30 miles. And he decided to put that in the book as a one-night walk from Rochester to London. Hey, guys, guess what I did? I'm going to put it in my book. Uh, no, we won't get too much into the details of the book, but it's the ending that I'm going to talk about for a second. Because in almost every standard edition of Great Expectations, it's a happy ending. Now, this was because one of Charles's associates convinced him to give Pip, the main character, a better ending that was originally written. The story originally had a very bleak ending with Pip failing at pretty much everything, including failing to win the girl he loved, failing to save his benefactor, and failing to make anything of himself. Now, he redeems himself morally, but that's it. Charles added an entire new chapter to the end of the book to make things more cheerful, and most critics agree with Forrester that it almost ruins the book. It was a better book with a horrible ending than it was with a cheerful ending. Again, Stranger Than Fiction would have been a better book if Will Ferrell died. Would have been a better movie if Will Ferrell died. Would have been a better book if his character had died. Well, yeah, but you, yeah, I mean, you get what I'm saying. Yes. Now, Forrester, Forrester was the only one of people to keep a copy of the original and publish it in the third volume of his Life of Dickens bio. Um, the truly odd thing is, is that with the serialization of Great Expectations, he was actually competing with himself. Because at the same time, Bradbury and Evans were publishing the first volume of his uncommercial traveler pieces that he had written while he still contracted with them about his time traveling and reading his stories in household words, which sold out and reprinted 
twice. Hmm. I mean, kind of karma, I guess. Like, okay, well, you can you can compete against us, but we're going to put out all this shit that you wrote for us, and we're going to make a ton of money off of it anyway. And they did. They, I mean, they sold the fucking magazine out every time it went out. So. While writing these masterpieces, he was again dealing with health issues. In June of 1859, he told a friend, quote, The cold is pretty much in the old stage, so I have made up my mind to think no more of it and to go in a general way, the way of all flesh. Now, the cold was more than likely his physical relationship with Nellie, to which all evidence was at this point still non-existent. <laughs> so, always a believer in sex being a vital part of a man's health, he probably looked elsewhere. Now, how does this extend to his health? Well, he wrote to his doctor, quote, My bachelor state has engendered a small malady on which I want to see you. The doctor prescribed medicine, which irritated his skin and didn't entirely cure his ailment. He told Forrester that he thought maybe a trip to the sea would do him some good, but, quote, I suppose there is no nitrate of silver in the ocean. Now, there's no real mention of what this ailment really is, but what we do know is that silver nitrate was used in the 19th century as a treatment for gonorrhea. <laughs> Making love to an unclean woman. Couldn't get it from Nellie, wasn't getting it from his wife. Prostitutes. Maybe why he stopped going yes, to the home. Yes, yes. Now, this wasn't the only health issue. Back pain, pain in the face, uh, age getting to him. But it was the funniest, so I put it in here. <laughs> not making, listen, I'm not making fun of people with gonorrhea, just him. Because, I mean, he's with Catherine for so long. He's not with anybody else that we know of. So, uh, you know, there are people saying that him and Mary work together because he loved her so much. And there are people who are saying him and Georgina, but there's no evidence of it. Um, so really, Catherine's the only person he's ever been with. And now all of a sudden, they're separated. And he can't be with the other woman he wants to be with. And then, boom, he goes his entire life. And now he's got gonorrhea because he can't keep it in his pants. I don't know. I think it's funny. That it's hilarious. That's what you get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1861 into 1862, he does more reading tours. They go on and on and on about the fucking reading tours. I get it. He did a lot of reading tours. Uh, in 1862, Charles spent a good amount of time in France. Now, Francois. Uh, I don't know what, if that's his name or not. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are many reasons possibly for this. But one that sticks out more than the rest. You see, after Charles's ailment was all cleared up, it seems that either because Mrs. Tiernan had finally said that it was okay, or simply because Nellie finally succumbed to his seduction, Charles and Nellie started a physical relationship. And given his history, there is a very good chance that there is no better place to hide a pregnant Nellie than France. Oh, fuck. <laughs> now, this is our... I don't get a ton into how big of a fucking scandal this was. That'd be a whole nother episode, and I didn't want to take this four episodes, so I kind of just skimmed through it. This whole Charles Nelly scandal is 
huge. And I mean, it, like, like I had said before, it, it ruins relationships between him and friends and family. Um, they do everything they can to kind of keep it as discreet as possible because a scandal like this back then, it, it's actually, it was illegal, you know? Yeah, like you, you weren't allowed to cheat on your wife. Yeah, and divorce was like a really taboo thing. It was, it would absolutely destroy his reputation. It would destroy her reputation. And actually, even the scandal that there might have been an affair between the two, um, it does ruin her career as an actress. People don't want to hire her anymore. And here, not too long, she actually just says, fuck it. Once she gets to her early 20s and says, fuck it, I'm done. I'm not acting anymore because I can't get any more acting jobs. It really fucks with both of them. And after Charles dies, Nellie goes on to tell everybody that we we were never in a relationship. We were just friends. And everybody knows she's full of shit. Because he does the same thing. He tells everybody that they're just friends. But everybody knows that they're both just full of shit. You can, uh, it's obvious. Because yeah. his own daughter puts uh, does a biography. Katie. She puts out a biography years later. Pretty much telling everybody that, yeah. We knew that they were together, and we knew they had a kid. Everybody kind of knew. So this whole shit that they were pulling wasn't fucking fooling anybody. But that's what it is. Now, in October, uh, Charles would write, Yet another fucking Christmas story. (laughs) This time called His Boots. About... A middle-aged grandfather, which he himself now was, with a temper and unforgiving those who crossed him. Now that he goes to France, takes an abandoned baby girl named Babelle back to England as his adopted child. The inspiration for the story came from one of these France trips while he was watching a French sailor acting as a nurse to his captain's baby girl. Uh, most say it's a good story, nothing super special, um, but now all of a sudden he's writing about bad-tempered, unforgiving grandfathers that go to France and uh, bring back adopted children. I mean, it's... It's him. Yeah, obviously. Through the winter of 1862 into 1863, Charles was asking for people to send him money for undisclosed reasons. Some people believe it was to pay doctors and nurses for Nellie's care while pregnant. Uh, He spent a month in the winter of 1863 in France, giving most everyone a different story as to why, but he himself suffering from anxiety and loss of sleep. He was back to France in March for, quote, some rather anxious business. Uh, That kept him busy for four or five days. And in April, he wrote of a, quote, Hasty summons to attend upon a sick friend. For the rest of the year, he would drop pretty much everything and go straight to France without giving anyone, even Forster, to our knowledge, of where exactly or why. Now, theory is that Nellie gave birth to a son, but the son was sick and frail and didn't live long. Aww. There are no births or death records for the child. Paris records were burnt in 1871, but an American scholar, Robert Garnett, 
puts the birth around late January to early February 1863, just when Charles took his month-long trip. Middle of January to the middle of February, he was in France. Makes sense. Yeah. As far as death goes, all we know is that in June of 1865, Nellie finally had returned to England with no child. So between January, February 1863 and June of 1865, child was born and died. That's all we really know. It's quite sad. Yeah. Now, how do we know she was in England? Because on the 9th of that month, she was on a train with her mother and Charles. When the train hit a bridge with loosened plates and fell into the river. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, they were banged up a bit. Nellie and uh, Mariah headed out as quickly as, could, as possible to not be seen with Charles while he stayed and actually helped with rescue efforts. I don't have it in here. Um, but he does save, actually save a few people's lives. He pulls one kid uh, out of some wreckage. Um, kid was like hanging upside down, and he pulls him out, saves his life, and he goes back and visits visits the kid several times in the hospital while he's recovering. So, again, he's such a fucking he's a douchebag to his family, but then he can do these amazing things for other people that he doesn't even know. He's a complex person. And a lot of times they don't know who he is and he doesn't care about that. Like none of the prostitutes he helped out at Shepherd's Bush knew who the fuck he was. They just knew that he was a guy helping them out. Yeah. So it's it's just somebody who's so egotistical. And then everything in household words was all anonymous. It's just he's so fucking egotistical. It's just weird for somebody like that to do these things. He's He's a weird fucking guy. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he's got split personality and one guy's a fiend and one guy's not. I don't I don't know. Could be. One guy's a fiend, one guy's Bray Wyatt's uh, Firefly Funhouse. Who knows? He could have DID. Yeah. Uh, now, in September, his mother died, was buried at Highgate Cemetery. She was old and she was sick, so it's not that big a deal. Uh, just before that, actually, Catherine's mother died and he said pretty much nothing to her about it. He's like, oh, okay. But then his mom died, and he's like, it's so horrible. The dick. Ends. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I did there? Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, now, uh, again, in 1863, he put out another Christmas story called Mrs. Lurper, about a London lodging housekeeper taking pity on a young woman who was abandoned by her lover, then dies in childbirth, leaving Mrs. Lurriper to raise the baby boy. After many years, she takes him to France to meet his penitent and dying father. And that's all I really have to say about that, because it doesn't really warrant anything else other than that. Now, in February of 1864, Charles found out that his son, Walter, had died while living in India. Uh, He had been sick for a while, then on the last day of 1863, he had died of an aneurysm yeah apparently charles was pretty pissed off at first he was i mean he was pissed off at walter at first because walter had been sick and he hadn't written to him to tell him that he was sick and that he wanted to leave 
and before Walter could leave India, uh, yeah, he died. So that sucks. That does. It's very sad. Yeah. Fewer Fra- France trips in 1864 while he was writing his newest book, Our Mutual Friend. Have you ever heard of Our Mutual Friend? Mm, I don't think so. It it was it was a it, it was fairly successful. One of his less popular books, but still something that uh, I think a lot of like Dickens aficionados would hold dear t- as, as one of their favorites because because of it's um, kind of terrifying in parts. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an, uh, an aficionado. Yeah. Uh, it would be his last completed novel. So, wrapping things up. Uh, he stopped doing public readings while he wrote it. He decided not to run it in all the year round, but to serialize it in a 20 monthly numbers in green paper wrappers in the old way. Signing a contract with, and here's a name you haven't heard for a little while, Chapman and Hall. They raised the concerns that he might not live long enough to even finish the work. He didn't have the energy he used to and was getting the works in by the deadline gave him anxiety. Plus, the opening sales were the lowest they had been for his recent books, starting at 40,000 copies sold, failing to falling to only 19,000 by the end. Our Mutual Friend is a look at London in the 1860s, a gritty, hopeless city where people starve to death in the streets, and the middle classes are shown as corrupt, complacent, lazy, greedy, and dishonest, more interested in the pursuits of shares than the pursuit of love. So, kind of like America. Mocking a couple named the Lamoles, a man and woman that marry one another because Both think that the other is rich. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Veneering, a corporate businessman going into Parliament, and Podsnap, an insurance broker convinced of the superiority of the British over all other nations. It's a violent, gritty, and dark story, getting many poor reviews. It was finished on September 2nd, 1865. And he wrote yet another Christmas story in 1865 called Dr. Marigold's Prescriptions, where the doctor describes the death of his daughter and his adoption of another who is deaf and dumb, who goes on to leave him to get married in China, and it ends with him welcoming her child to his home, a little girl that can hear and speak. It's a cheesy lifetime or hallmark style story that audiences just ate the fuck up at public readings just they loved it because it's got three little girls in it um one of them dies and then he adopts another one and she goes off to get married in this exotic world and then she brings back to to her uh adopted father this new little baby who she can't hear or uh, speak but her baby can oh it's so it's so great yeah yeah just circle of life just tears snot and tears just running down your face Uh, in february 1866 charles's doctor told him that he had degeneration of the functions of the heart which was not much of a surprise he had been getting more tired as of late 
With the weight of morality pressing down, he began to produce more articles and some effortful stories. He even planned and wrote a fair portion of a new novel. And he moved around a lot, never staying in the same place for more than a few days. The American Civil War was done, which means he could finally do a reading tour here, even though he never really wanted to return. He needed the money. Now, this was also the year when he would hire on his new manager, George Dolby, a big, full of energy, just married 35-year-old man that was probably why Charles liked him so much, an out-of-work theater manager. Dolby would quickly grow to love and idolize Charles, calling him Chief. Hey, Chief. Hey, Chief. What you want, Chief? They were, he was English, so it was, this part of a spot of tea, Chief. Hey, Chief. Hey, Chief. Uh, this was a time when Charles, Charles's gout was at some of its worst causing him daily pains and taking away one of his most favorite things in the world, his long, fast walks. Oh, I was going to say fucking horse. Uh, now you can do that on your back. <laughs> and he had Nelly now, so. Um, his, yeah, he would walk, and, and, and these weren't just like leisurely walks. He would like, it was like fucking Santino Morella power walking. I mean, he was going fucking at it. His wife couldn't keep up. Catherine couldn't keep up with him. So, uh, Now, ironically enough, Charles's favorite restorative between public readings, you know, restorative, you know, uh, a dozen oysters and champagne. Now, if you're dealing with gout, there's a few things they tell you to avoid. Organ meat, uh, some beef, coffee, soda, and oh, yeah, Alcohol and shellfish. If you have gout, do not drink alcohol and don't eat fucking shellfish. It makes your gout worse. And what does he eat between each public reading? Fucking shellfish. And it says some champagne. Like a pint of fucking champagne. Yeah, and that's what he did a lot back in England. He read, he did those readings all the time. Yeah. So no wonder he had gout. He probably got it from the shellfish and the alcohol. But that, that, that doesn't help. He's had, I mean, he had gout from, he was fairly, you know, a lot younger he started dealing with this. But he didn't want to accept the diagnosis of gout. So if, if you don't accept that gout is what's wrong with you, you're not going to worry about what you could eat or drink. Right. Whatever. <sighs> I mean. Now, the spring of 1866, he traveled with Dolby for three months reading, covering Scotland, the North, Birmingham, and Clifton. And that in early 1867, for four months in Ireland, Wales, Hereford, and more northern cities, they had figured out that reading his stories made more money than writing them did. People came in droves to see Charles Dickens read Charles Dickens. He made a... Because every time he did one, it was sold out. And he does a lot of them. Uh, in October, Charles got news that his youngest brother, Augustus, you know, the one that skipped out on his blind wife, and mm -hmm. he died. Third sibling to die from tuberculosis of the lungs. You don't have to sit there with a smile on your face. Not it's something. not a smile. It's a. That kind of sucks. It's yeah. It does. 
Now there's a, there's a big thing about now he was afraid that his his ex you know Augustus's wife still in England was going to come looking for him for money and uh, his his mistress in America was going to come to him looking for money. So he sets up like this allowance for Augustus's oldest son, mm-hmm. and he's like, okay, you're going to get this much, and then that's it. Nobody else is getting shit from me from you guys because <laughs> I can't afford to pay for everybody. But that's one thing he does start taking on um, the the responsibility of taking care of his family members. Yeah, he does. So you can give him credit for that, I guess. Now, also in October, he began work on some railway stories for the Christmas issue of All the Year Round. Mainline, The Boy at Mugby, a humorous tribute to the horrors of the refreshment room at Rugby Station, and a ghost story called The Signal Man. Scary stuff. Mm. Uh, 1867 started with more readings. Uh, between January 15th and the end of March, Charles had set up 36 readings. Portsmouth, London, Liverpool, Chester, Wolverhampton, Leicester, London, Leeds, Manchester, Bath, London, Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, Edinburgh, York, Bradford, Newcastle, Wakefield, London, Dublin, Belfast, Dublin, London, Cambridge, Norwich, doing several readings a day. All by train. God damn, he's not going to make them all, is he? No, he, no. If he set, if he, uh, that's what he did. Those I just read. That wasn't what he had scheduled to do. Those are the readings he did. Oh, if he scheduled a reading, he did it. No matter how he felt, he never. He did not skip out on a reading. There was times where Dolby had to carry him onto stage and then back off of stage for him to do his readings. One, because he loved the adoration. Two, he needed the fucking money. He was paying for a lot of people. Yes, he, yeah. Now, he wrote George Silverman's Explanation for the Atlantic Monthly in June, a narrative of a man born to miserably poor parents in Preston, orphaned, grows up with a sense of unworthiness, unable to make friends, achieves a university degree, and becomes a clergyman and a teacher. It's seen as one of his failures. He also wrote Holiday Romance for the American Children's Market and No Thoroughfare for Wilkie Collins to adapt into a play, also seen as failures. I mean, it happens to the best of them. Uh, In August, Dolby went to Boston to make arrangements for Charles's American reading tour and the possibility of Nellie going with them somehow. Uh, You see, all this time, him and Nellie were still having their affair. Uh, there's talk about after the train wreck, she got scared and uh, didn't want to have the relationship with him anymore, but they they continued to have it. There was talk as to both of them kind of being miserable in the relationship because she would kind of go back and forth on to whether or not she really wanted to be in it or not, but at the end of the day, they kept the affair going. I don't know why. He's a lot older than her. Yeah, so pretty much they were just kind of friends with benefits? Uh, No, they were a couple. They move in together. They live with one another um, at the end of his life. They are, they are together, but there are times where she regrets being with him. There's times where they're kind of miserable because at first keeping the secret of this you know, affair is ooh so hot and, and steamy, but after a while, it just kind of turns into a chore. You know, 
you can only keep up a secret like that for so long before it becomes a burden. No, I suppose. I've never had to really do that. Me either, but it for them it does. I mean, they do it for years. Years they keep up this charade like they're not together when everybody already knows that they are. Just it's a lot. It, it seems like it's a lot to carry. Just a big secret like that. Just to protect your own reputation. Mm, okay. Now the second week of November, he set off on the Cuba towards America without Nelly. Now I remember I said that he uh, he wouldn't go to America again. He's going for a tour, so he doesn't go back to vacation or or to talk to people. He goes back to make money. So yeah, I mean, fair enough. Uh, he told Forrester before he left that when he landed, he would write a letter. If it said all well, it meant Nellie should be sent to America. If it said safe and well, she should not be. Again, more secretive bullshit. The letter was finally received and said, safe and well, expect good letter full of hope. James Fields, the Bostonian that set up the tour, made it clear there could be no Nellie on the tour. Uh, or he said, Mad- Madam because he had a different name for Nellie for pretty much anybody he talked to. Uh, for for some people, it was Madam. For Dolby, it was Madam. For Forster, it was the patient, because he was taking care of her in uh, France. Oh. Uh, so he had a different name that he called her for everybody, but I just put down Nellie. Uh, the tour would net him 20,000 pounds. I mean, he... Even though he puts out that those two horrible books about America, Americans still kind of fucking love him. Uh, he was sick with a cold he called the American Qatar for almost the entire trip. Uh, near the end of the tour in March 1868, his ailments were so bad that Dolby had to help him across the platform to his reading desk and off at the end. He ate almost nothing, but he drank plenty. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, he ended up doing 67 readings between uh, the beginning of December, between the middle of November, end of November, till the 1st of May. Well, not even the 1st of May, because he got back to Liverpool on the 1st of May, so the first, the, the, near the end of April. Damn. Yeah. All while sick. That's like two a day, almost. Uh, well... You got to remember, he's traveling by train to all these other cities because he goes he goes as far west as Chicago, and they had to cut um, the tour in half because of how sick he had gotten. So they didn't even go as far as he wanted to go. But yeah, so let's see, December, January, February, March, five months he did reading tours, sixty seven different uh, different readings. Oh, okay, so so like not one a no, day. yeah, but that's all. I mean. Uh, by train? Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of traveling. In October, Charles got word that his brother Fred had died in extreme poverty, living on, quote, a penny bun and a glass of ginger beer for breakfast, otherwise mostly cold gin, not even able to afford to smoke. He was he was as broke as you could fucking get. That's, wow, that's very... Sad. Well, I mean, he fucked over his wife, divorced her, cheated on her. Got she divorced him, 
fled the country, didn't pay his alimony, fled the country, came back. Bankrupt. Bankrupt, got thrown in prison. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Charles is really the only one that comes out of it with anything. And even he tries really hard to ruin his own fucking life. He lets his dick lead the way. Yeah. His dickens. Uh, He had had started work on new reading taken from Oliver Twist, Sykes and Nancy, about the murder of Nancy by Bill Sykes. Very horrible, but very dramatic. Uh, Forster and Dolby were both against it. He arranged a trial reading in November, and Charles wrote to Fields boasting about how horrible it was, and after hearing it, Forster was even more against it. Uh, One critic said he had felt an irresistible desire to scream, and a physician warned of the dangers of contagious hysteria in the audience. Mass hysteria. Charles had every intention on going ahead with the performances, (laughs) saying, quote, I wanted to leave behind me the recollection of something very passionate and dramatic, done with simple means, if the art would justify the theme. He read it 25 times between January 1869 and March 1870, horrifying audiences. So he goes into, like, deep detail about how Bill Sykes kills Nancy. And it just freaks people out. God damn. Uh, On April 18th, Charles had a stroke, telling his doctor that he had the uncertainty of footing, especially on the left side, and an extreme indisposition to raise his hands to his head. He was avid that the stroke came from his overwork and decided to stop touring as a precautionary measure. In August, he was invited to stay over at Lord and Lady Russell's home at Pembroke Lodge. He had been to their house many times before for dinner and knew that, quote, champagne did not circulate at Pembroke Lodge. Knowing this, he had packed a bottle of Ballard's Punch in his bag, intending to mix himself a drink in his room at bedtime. He went without a servant, expecting to do his own unpacking, and was embarrassed to find that the valet who had laid out his dress suit had also arranged his bottle of punch on the dresser with a tumbler, wine glass, and corkscrew beside it. Yeah, if this wasn't embarrassing enough... Around 10.30, when the Russells normally went to bed, Charles stood up to wish them a good night. They both started laughing, and Lady Russell said, quote, Don't be in a hurry. The tray will be here in a minute. Oh, that's awful. In came a servant with the materials for making punch. Charles told the story to friends in good humor, but... Sneaking a bottle of booze so he could have a late-night drink by himself shows just how bad his dependency on alcohol had become. Yeah. He was a fucking boozer. I mean, it's pretty bad. Yeah. You know that somebody doesn't like alcohol in their house, so you sneak it in just because you can't go one night without a fucking drink? Yeah. I mean, you don't drink. I like alcohol, but I I go without it. Well, you have to, for one. I don't have to. Well, with your medication, you really have to. Well, no, because I don't, I don't take that main medicine anymore, and I know how my other medicine affects me. But I do it anyway just because I really don't drink that often. And, I mean, I really only socially drink 
to begin with. And I mean, I would drink more at home, but I just, I don't feel comfortable drinking around the kids all that often. Yeah. I think it'd be more like if uh, you went over to somebody's house and stayed the evening and they're like, we do not allow tea in our house. And you had to sneak in a thing of tea. Yeah, that I would (laughs) be like, I can't have my sweet tea. What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, fuck you. (laughs) I don't have any vices, so I'm fine. I can go without whatever. Well, I mean, yeah, like the the whole time I was at my friend Angie's house, she doesn't smoke. I went outside. I rarely smoked while I was up there to begin with because it was... It's so fucking cold outside. Yeah, it was in Minnesota. <laughs> and I, I rarely went outside to smoke because it was so cold outside. But, you know, I didn't smoke in her house and I wanted to spend time with her. So She's I, listening to this probably thinking, bitch went outside all the fucking time. Fuck her. I did not. <laughs> I mean, did I? I don't I don't remember. Tell me if I did. Spend time with me fucking calling her husband outside. <laughs> I didn't even call you that often, did I? Yeah, uh, uh, twice two, a day? Uh it might not even be that much. Well, at least once a day. I once know at a day, night. Once a day, but no, I don't know if you did twice a day or not. Sometimes twice a day. Yeah. Okay, so in October, he thought of a title for a new murder mystery love story. That he would call The Mystery of Edwin Drood. He wrote the first chapter, sent it to Forrester. Uh, he planned a farewell tour for London, wanting to do 12 more readings the next year. Dolby wasn't sure if he would make it with his slower work pace, but once a reading was scheduled, the reading got read. He obliged. Yes. December 13th, he signed a contract for Drood to be published by our good friends Chapman and Hall. Uh, Hall's son, Hall had died. Hall's son took over for him, but it was still considered Chapman and Hall. Uh, He was going to publish it in 12 parts starting March 1870, making a commitment up to the spring of 1871. He knew he had little time left and set to pack each one of his days as full as he could handle with businesses meetings, readings, public and private, Office work, discussions with illustrators, plans for improvement at Gad's house, speeches, dinners, receptions, his daughter's amateur theatricals, social obligations with friends, politicians, and royalty, all while writing The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Uh, He didn't stop for a breath until the day he fell unconscious to the ground. His last reading was on March 15th to an audience of 2,000 at St. James Hall, A Christmas Carol, and The Trial of Pickwick. And many in attendance, including Forster, said it was the best reading he had ever done. Uh, Even though he wasn't able to say Pickwick, it came out as Pickswick or Pecknick or Pickwick's. It's not nice to make fun of somebody who had a stroke. I'm not making fun of him. That's how that's how it came out. Because he had had a stroke. Big problem that and the fact that he's just he, he wasn't that old, but he had ran his body down, and it didn't seem like he the, was a workhorse. It didn't seem like a lot of the Dickens were really that healthy to begin with. No, because most of them had died from tuberculosis. <laughs> so three of them. Uh, at the end, the audience called him back several times until he spoke some farewell farewell words, telling them to expect his new novel's first installment in two weeks, and then, quote, from these garish lights I vanish now, forevermore, 
with a heartfelt, grateful, respectful, and affectionate farewell. Always very, very flowery and very filled with adjectives. Very floral. Uh, at the end of the month, he wrote to Forster describing a recurrence of severe hemorrhaging from his piles. Uh, this is what I said I had to look up when I was working on this the his other poop. day. No, when I was working on this the other day, and I said I had to look up a word, and I'm not, and I'm, I wish I hadn't. A pile is a hemorrhoid. On his on his butt, yeah. Yeah, severe hemorrhaging from his piles. He had bleeding hemorrhoids. Yeah. Severe bleeding hemorrhoids, which left him shaken. <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, the laudanum he took to help him sleep would have caused constipation, making the hemorrhoids worse. Yes. On the 28th, he signed an agreement with Chapman and Hall covering the copyright of all his books, which was shared equally between himself and the publishers. In April, Charlie took over all the year round, and on June 2nd, Charles gave him the whole of his share and interest in the magazine with all its stock and effects. So he knows it's coming. He's he's cleaning house. The mystery of Edwin Drood sold well from the start, outdoing Our Mutual Friend by 10,000 and reaching 50,000 an issue. A murder story with exoticism, opium, mesmerisms, and hauntings. The only real problem was that it never got finished, leaving the mystery unsolved. Ooh. And it, it, she goes on for a little bit of the book. Um, a lot of people have, over the years have tried to figure out the mystery to finish off the story, but nobody knows if it's right or not because he dies before he can finish writing it. Yes. Uh, there were there were some some small speeches and dinners over the next couple of months, but his body and mind were leaving him. He seemed fine at most dinners in front of friends and admirers, but one morning Charlie stopped by his home to see him and found him absorbed in work on Drood, and Charles didn't answer him. He remained oblivious to his son, and even when he turned in his direction, he appeared to look through him. Just kind of had that thousand mile stare on his face, like Alzheimer's. Something like that, yeah. So, Charlie left without a goodbye. Foreshadowing? Yeah. Yeah. On June 8th, Georgina said that Charles came to the house in the middle of the day for an hour's rest to smoke a cigar and then went back to work in the chalet. Contrary to his usual habit, returning to the house in the late afternoon to write letters and entertain the dining room and entering the dining room at 6 looking unwell. He sat down, and she asked him if he felt ill, and he replied, quote, Yes, very ill. I have been very ill for the last hour. On her saying she would send for a doctor, he said, you know, maybe later. The stubborn man, obviously. Mm -hmm. He made an effort to struggle against the fit that was coming on him and talked incoherently and soon very indistinctly. Georgina gave several versions of what happened, and she told Forrester that he mentioned a sale at a neighbor's house before stating his intentions of going to London immediately. In another version, when she suggested calling the doctor, he said no, complaining of a toothache, holding his jaw, and asking to have the window shut, which she did. Uh, 
his jaw hurting was probably a sign of a heart attack. Yes. Yeah. In every version, however, she gave the final exchange. Her come and lie down and his reply, quote, yes, on the ground as he collapsed to the floor and lost consciousness. Nellie, with the help of her maids, the good-natured caretaker of the church nearby, sworn to secrecy about her being there, and a hackney cabman, got the unconscious man into a two-horse brogman supplied by the local job masters used to driving Nellie and Charles, and drove him to Gad's Hill. The thought was that he had suffered a brain hemorrhage, and everyone knew that it was probably the end. He lasted all the way until 6 the next evening, when he gave a sigh, a tear appeared in his right eye and ran down his cheek, and he stopped breathing. He had wanted to be buried in Kent, but everyone knew he belonged in Westminster Abbey. His body was loaded into an oak coffin and carried in a special train on June 14th to Sharing Cross. Charlie, Mamie, Katie, Henry, his sister Letitia, Georgina, Charlie's wife, Bessie, and Alfred's son, Edmund, Forster, Wilkie Collins' brothers, and his doctor, Frank Beard, were the only ones on the train. Catherine wasn't invited. Uh, Charles didn't want a public funeral or an announcement. Nellie wasn't on the train, but there's a good chance she took herself to the Abbey anyway. Uh, I think they said there was all of 14 people at his funeral. But that's what he wanted. Uh, there's no eulogy, no singing, just uh, quiet organ music and the reading of burial services. You know, so the exact opposite of Hunter S. Thompson. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you go to Westminster Abbey and you could see his gravestone, but there's nothing special about it. It just has his name on it. He didn't want anything. He just wanted to be put in the ground and, and, and done. So, I mean, what can you say about about him except for the fact that he was extremely complicated man um beautiful writer wrote just as much shit as he did masterpieces but I mean, that that's the life of charles dickens <laughs> just kind of a misogynistic racist piece of shit well i wouldn't go as far as say racist he was against slavery which a lot of people then weren't he was He's a difficult man to, to tack down into one genre of person. You know, he was an asshole to his family for most of the time. But when something happened to somebody in his family, he took care of... So it didn't look bad on him, not because he did it out of kindness. Yeah, but then you look at the home at Shepherd's Bush. Nobody knew about that. That didn't come out until a long time later that he had done any of that. He had done that because he wanted to help those women out. They didn't know who he was. The only two people who knew he was doing that really were him and Mrs. Couts, and she didn't tell anybody until after he died. Yeah, I suppose. And then, you know, he helped out a lot of the poor. I didn't get into it a lot, but he helped out a lot of the poor. He, um, he stayed and helped people at the train wreck. He could have easily just taken off. But he stayed and he helped people. He was, I mean, he was... He was a complicated person. Yeah, but that doesn't forgive him for what he did oh, to I'm his not, family. I'm not saying that forgives him. I'm not, that, I'm not even insinuating that he should be forgiven for, this, for the horrible things he did to his wife and the way he treated his kids half the time because he was kind of a fiend at home. Um, 
I'm just saying he was, for every bad thing he did, you could see something good that he did. And for every good thing he did that made made it seem like he was a good guy, you can look at some fucking horrible thing that he did to, to somebody who he was supposed to love. It almost equals out to being just a neutral person. Not quite, but I get what you're saying. I don't know. He He's not who I thought he was when I started this. I knew th- I knew he had had an affair. Um, I knew that there was shit that happened with the theater with an actress, but I didn't know the extent it went to, and I didn't know how how poorly he really treated his wife through the whole thing, which is really a big sticking point, you know, for most married people. Yeah, it's how how somebody treats their spouse, you know. Uh, but I mean, I guess back then that's kind of normal. That's how the eighteen hundreds every husband treated their wife like shit. Well, I wouldn't go as far as say every husband treated their wife like shit. Um, but women were property. W- women were property. Women were the the second class citizen in the house. It went, it went husband, wife, children in that order. It wasn't, it wasn't a partnership. The husband ran everything. The wife took care of the rest of the shit. But he, you know, he was king of the castle and she just was below him. But that doesn't mean that every husband treated their wife like shit, especially to the point where he did. No, but there were also women who had it much worse than she did. Agreed. He never, like, beat her up or, or anything like that. That or, we know of. That we know of. He never did anything like that. Um, but, I mean, telling everybody that she didn't love the kids and the kids didn't love her and lying to get his point across, lying about her, lying about himself, lying about their relationship, telling everybody, oh, the relationship was never good. When we can look back on it and see that there were good times, that they did have good times, like the trip to America that they took. He went on and on about how great she was. Yeah. And it's like, listen, she is obviously not the problem in this fucking relationship. He just, well, he... I think he just liked women too much. He was a whoremonger. He was kind of a whoremonger. But, well, that's the life of Charles Dickens. I hope everybody liked it. Um, (laughs) There's a lot more in that book. I'd say go get the book. Just try not, just don't maybe listen to it while you're driving because you might fall asleep because some of it is pretty fun. Like, she goes in like three or four paragraphs just talking about what's in his daily diary. Like, (laughs) She's like, and I understand that most people don't want to know all this, but it goes to show you how he treated, how he uh, spent his time, how so much more of his time was spent with Nelly than with with so and so or doing this or doing that. It's like, yeah, I really, I didn't. Need, I, I, I okay. So uh, I skipped over a lot of shit. Go in there, you know, get the book, read it, uh, fi- read about all the things that we didn't share on here. Uh, but maybe that puts a different light on the world's greatest novelist of all time which is is still even if if he was a shit person that's still what he is he's still (laughs) (laughs) that was our dog (laughs) that's he's still even though he's he's a piece of shit he's still the greatest novelist to ever live number two on greatest authors of all time in our big 10 behind i'm I'm sure you guys can guess who number one is but mark twain's number 10 We've oh. discussed this. Then who was number one? On the Big Ten, yes. who was our in, in, the best writers, the best authors of all time, 
who's number one? Yeah. Is that a serious question you're asking me of? Is who Shakespeare? Who, yeah, who is the best author of all time? Shakespeare? Yes, Shakespeare. Oh, okay. The man whose every single story is based off of Shakespeare, pretty much. You, you can point to a Shakespeare reference in pretty much any story ever written. Yeah, and and uh, movie. Yeah, so, so yeah, <laughs> but Charles Dickens is the best novelist ever. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because Shakespeare didn't write novels; he wrote plays, pretty much. Okay. Are you, Excuse me. Are you sure it's okay? Yes. Okay. You, you're, just, you're just like, okay. Is that it? Uh. Well, first. We need to give out our socials. <laughs> well, that's what I was. Saying. That's um, yes. Charles Dickens dying is the end of the story. Okay. Well, <laughs> you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Open A F I N G Book, and you can find me at E C J B A T. You almost forget yes. where they can find you at. Yes. Uh, I am Young E T A M six on Twitter. Young E T A M on Instagram. You can go. Uh, email us if there's any authors you want us to talk about or, or books you want us to cover uh, openafingbook at gmail.com Stephanie or Goodreads goodreads.com slash openafingbook we sell plenty of stickers on our Patreon patreon.com slash openafingbook all your donations go to make this the best possible show that we can make it or something <laughs> like that <laughs> rate and review us on all the podcasts at apps uh apple spotify google podcast if, if they give you a chance to rate review comment follow all that good shit go ahead and, and do it that helps us out go to your local library volunteer if they let you uh go to your local independent bookstore and buy a book from a local independent author best thing you can do to help them out right now in the holiday season um so we're gonna be taking some time off for the new year just uh i i I would like to say that we're going to relax and just, you know, hang out, but I have a ton of work to do for the next series. So, um, I will not be relaxing, uh, kicking back cool while the outside shooting some b-ball by the school. I fucked up the French Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and then it, yeah, I yeah. got it. So we're going to take some time off for the new year. So our next episode will come out, um, on the 11th. I was thinking about doing the 6th and having a weekday Cliff Notes episode come out, but I think we're going to start off fresh with a new series. Um, who we're covering, is, she is... I had never heard of her before, and then right when I we I start, you know, I learn about her and read about her and everything, they mention her on a show that we're watching called Evil on CBS. I was like, holy shit, that's who we're covering next! I never, I've, I've never heard her before, and now all of a sudden she's popping up on TV shows. Um, she's an odd one, uh, not like Hunter S. Thompson odd, but like uh, cat lady type odd, but not cats, a different animal. Yeah, have to wait till the eleventh to find out, I guess. And ooh. not, not ooh, more like ooh. <laughs> like <laughs> okay, shit everywhere, but um. So come back on the 11th for our uh, next author series while we take some time off and kind of just enjoy the holidays, enjoy the new year, and hope that maybe 2021 doesn't suck as much as 2020 has. 
Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And twat crossed. Yes. Well, I hope everybody had a a, a great Christmas. Um, ours was pretty good. It, you know, it was a weird Christmas, but we made it work. We did. You know, and hopefully you all have a safe and happy New Year uh, at home. Uh, not partying uh, with a bunch of people. I'm kind of anxious to see what they do for like New Year's, New York, Times Square, and all that shit. If there's parties or anything like that, oh, I hope not. Ugh. I hope not. All right. Well, before we depress ourselves more, uh, let's get the fuck out of here. All right. All right. All right. Well, guys, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right, guys. Have a happy new year. Bye, guys. Ho, 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 ho.